Welcome to the message for Sunday, July the 30th, 2023. Our text for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that your love and your peace and your influence would so guide and direct our lives that we become contagious with that good news and that the folks around us receive your love through us. Lord, transform us in just such a way. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I wish the whole world could know the love and the joy and the peace that comes in Christ Jesus. My faith has guided me through my entire life. It has defined me. It's given me purpose. It's filled me with hope for the future of this life and the next. It's seen me through difficult times. It's given me strength and supported me when I was at my lowest. I want everyone to have what I have. And so does Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 28, right at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words are the last that Jesus spoke before his ascension. They are his final will and testament for the church. They're his final and lasting instructions to us. They echo the teaching of the parable of the yeast. The idea of the kingdom is that, like yeast, it spreads through us and infects every part of us and transforms us and those around us. Jesus shared this incredible gift of grace with the disciples, and he wanted them to pass it on to others. I mean, that's how we got it. That's how we received the faith. The very survival of Christianity depends on us to pass it on. The geography of the Holy Land itself serves as an example. The life-giving water flows from the melted snow at the cap of Mount Hermon, way up in the northern part of the country. That melted snow flows down the mountain and into the Jordan River, which forms the Sea of Galilee, which provides fresh water for the whole northern part of the country. The river flows out of the Sea of Galilee and down constantly through the rest of the country, until it empties into the Dead Sea. That life-giving water that sustains the entire Jordan River Valley dumps into the Dead Sea at 1,300 feet below sea level, the lowest place on earth above water, a place where there's no outlet. The water just sits there and dies. Water evaporates, leaving behind the rich mineral content so that the content of the Dead Sea mineral content is above 25%. Nothing lives there. Because it doesn't give away that life-giving water to something downstream, it sits and it dies. 
just like the Dead Sea, if we simply sit and ruminate in our faith, it will eventually become toxic and it will die. For Christianity to survive, we must pass it on. But sometimes our attempts to pass it on have been toxic. Sometimes in our zeal to spread good news, the news has not been so good. The conquistadors in ancient North America provide an obvious example. Driven by some odd combination of greed and faith, they forced Christianity on Native Americans under threat of sword. Either you convert to Christianity, you believe in Jesus, or we're going to kill you. Obviously, a lot of people converted. Cortes, who conquered the Aztecs, wrote of the Aztecs, The most important of these idols, and the ones in whom they have the most faith, I have taken from their places and thrown down the steps. The Franciscans claimed that they destroyed more than 500 temples and 20,000 images within seven years. As one native wrote to the king of Spain, the people of many towns were forced and tortured, were hanged or burned because they did not want to leave idolatry, and unwillingly they received the gospel and faith. Unwillingly they received the gospel and faith. Well, the decent people that are listening today to this message know that that behavior is horrific. We're appalled that something like that ever could have been done in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We would not want want to have anything to do with that. And granted, that is an extreme. I use the extreme to make a point, to set an example, because much more subtle examples of religious coercion remain today. They're all around us. This fall, as October rolls around, you'll see the rise of hell houses or judgment houses. This is an experience designed particularly targeting youth, uh, teenagers, to to scare them, uh, to scare them with the possibility of hell so that they are coerced into a commitment for Christ. And I wonder, why does a conversation about faith so often have to start with the phrase, if you were to die tonight. I mean, once again, are we not coercing people? We want to scare people with the, with the prospect of the darkest day coming in their future and, and use that to coerce some sort of decision out of them. Even a recent story from a popular fast food franchise illuminates how easily and maybe innocently we resort to coercion. The manager of a store offered a free meal to a hungry homeless person if the manager could first pray for the homeless guy. I mean, the manager thinks he's doing a good thing, thinks he's doing the right and appropriate thing. This guy comes in hungry and asking for some of the leftovers, and the manager says, I'll do better. I'll actually give you a meal, but first, let me pray for you. Well, obviously, the guy consented. He was hungry. What else is he going to do? And social media celebrated the heroic Christian manager for sharing his faith with this poor soul. There was little discussion of the faith that the homeless guy might already have. We assume that because he's homeless, that he has no faith, that that because he's hungry, that he must also be lost. Perhaps he was a stronger Christian than the manager. We don't know. Perhaps he was of a different faith. We 
don't know, but the manager made some assumptions. And no one really wanted to talk about the bribery involved. I'll feed you if I can pray with you. That's a conditional kind of love that God never shows to us. God doesn't say, uh, God didn't say, I'll send Jesus into the world if you'll believe in him. He just sent him. Uh, that's, it's a conditional love and it's a, it's, while well-meaning, it's an example of coercion. Now, I believe that the manager's intentions were good, but sometimes our zeal lacks perspective. We refuse to respect the integrity of the person we're helping by forcing the kingdom on them. We want the world to experience the all-expansive love of Christ, but we don't want to follow some bad examples. The result is much of the church has just given up. We've, we have abandoned the Great Commission. We no longer want to go into all the world and make disciples of all people because we don't want to be conquistadors. We don't want to be pushy. We don't want to be overbearing. And so the bad examples may have kept us from evangelism altogether. The non-Christian world is not ours to conquer, but it is ours to love. So how do we go about sharing the good news without being hurtful? Well, the answer begins with what is unseen. The answer begins in our own hearts and in our own spirits. It's a tiny seed hidden in our own hearts, a tiny amount of leaven mixed into our own lives. See, if we're ever going to faithfully represent the love of Christ to the world around us, we must be completely absorbed in the love of Christ ourselves. And so that, that seed of faith must grow in us. The leaven must change who we are, transform us. Our daily walk with our Savior through prayer, through devotion, and through worship allows God's love to gradually transform us. The seed in us grows into something bigger, a, a shrub or a small tree. The, the leaven begins to shape our lives so that we resemble Christ. The kingdom of heaven shapes our lives into something that attracts. Read the Gospels. People flocked to Jesus, especially hurting people, especially people who felt estranged from God, especially people who thought that God had forgotten them. They flocked to Jesus. They experienced love, not pressure and condemnation. There was something attractional about who Jesus is, and when we are transformed by that same Spirit, then people will be drawn to the gospel in us. We don't have to force anything on anybody. Jesus never forced. He loved. He welcomed. Once our lives are, lives are leavened, they begin to influence any whom we rub up against. The pressure is not on us to transform people or to convert them. Our job is to love and to allow the Spirit to work as the Spirit will. That's as straightforward as that. We get the privilege of loving people, of all people, and loving people thoroughly and letting folks know perhaps the source of our love, but then God will make what changes God sees fit. When we're full of the love of Christ, that love infects the community around us. It doesn't overpower, it doesn't conquer, but it does infect the community around us. It has a transformational quality. We're not called to conquer but to love. May God so fill our lives with love that we become contagious with the kingdom of heaven to all we encounter.